Good morning. It's Monday, the 28th of August, and this is Govind Rajathiraj based in Mumbai, India's financial capital and host to much intermittent rain and sunshine in the last few days. Our top stories and themes for the day empowerment, the new way of measuring economic security at $12 per person, China's missing data, and India's too. The government suspects exporters of selling non basmati rice as basmati rice and clamps down. A new Global Disaster Resilience Coalition sets up shop in India. This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. There is a new way to look at where we are in terms of economic well-being. Consulting firm McKinsey & Company says that this new empowerment line, as it calls it, means going from the World Bank's extreme poverty line of $2.15 per person per day to $12 per person per day in developing countries in purchasing power parity terms. At this level, says the firm, individuals will have the means to meet the full range of essential needs and begin to attain economic security. Now, Before we go into that, more than half the population of the G20 nations, about 2.6 billion people, are below this empowerment line. And the greatest proportion of people living below the empowerment line, measured as a share of total national population, live in India and South Africa. That's more than 75%, followed by Indonesia, Mexico, Brazil and China, which is more than 50%. Now, all this narration is part of a G20-focused white paper from McKinsey called Driving Sustainable and Inclusive Growth in G20 Economies, Scaling Initiatives on Empowerment and Net Zero. The white paper is a companion piece, as the consulting firm calls it, to a broader McKinsey Global Institute study called From Poverty to Empowerment, Raising the Bar for Sustainable and Inclusive Growth. These papers try and look at the linkages between growth, inclusion, and sustainability. And also how the G20 economies have to invest some $35 trillion in the next seven years to be on track for the world to reach net zero emissions by 2050. To understand more on this report and the empowerment line, I spoke with Amit Khera, senior partner at McKinsey based out of Gurgaon, and began by asking him to define the empowerment line and what went into it. This is a concept I think we've been talking about for some time, but and we wanted to give this a real push. I think they went too hung up on poverty line forever. As a world, we have done a fabulous job in pulling out people out of extreme poverty. But I think what we are saying is, potentially the new way to look at it is not pulling out people from extreme poverty, but making them more prosperous. And that's where the empowerment line comes in. Any person who is above empowerment line, as we have defined in our report, has access to basic healthcare, has access to house, basic living, has access to quality education, is also able to save some money so that I think after bad days, they don't go into abject poverty again, which happened for people who were just above poverty line, for example, even if we look at last two, three years. So that's a concept we are trying to introduce, which is a tougher challenge, of course. I think the number from around two, two and a half dollars will go up to $12. But that's at least what we believe we should aspire together to take our people to not just above poverty line, but above empowerment line so that they can live a prosperous life and also they can have some savings and also they can participate in the society. So that's a concept we are trying to introduce to this. Right. So if you were to now either work backwards or forwards, forwards, I think we are talking about emissions, net zero standards, sustainability. Backwards, we obviously need economic growth to drive all of this. So what is a bigger focus here right now? 
so that's the title of the report also. I think our sense is that nothing can happen at the cost of other and there is no one focus versus the other. It's a and rather than an or. The investment we make is looking at all three. For example, toward net zero and we say net zero at all cost, especially for developing countries and countries like India, we are making everything very expensive. We are making energy very expensive. We are hindering growth. And if we say growth at all cost, then we are harming the environment. Again, our point of view is that it is almost an imperative that we save the planet, we grow and we pull people up to prosperity or above empowerment line. And therefore, it's a balance of almost all three. The investment also, I think that we have spoken in the report is for all three. And our push is that the decisions we take as companies, as countries, as governments are towards all three rather than in silos, which will be suboptimal as us. Right. And are you also saying, therefore, that this has been the approach so far across, in this case, G20, but I'm assuming across countries in the world, and which is why we need to do a bit of a reset in the way we approach this from a policy perspective? We would say, I think the narratives, and again, it is also the way within the institutions work. I think there are separate institutions typically, which are focusing on a net zero growth obviously becomes a much wider agenda and then there are separate institutions in countries or other places which are focusing on poverty for example and the way the multilateral institutions are also structured are I think they are in silos if you look at sustainability or you look at growth or you look at poverty or you look at SDG which typically also has been I think where we are coming from an empowerment so yes we are saying we have looked at it in a, in a bit of silos. Yes, there is some coordination mechanism, but it's time now, given where we are, to look at all of this much more holistically. Potentially, I think you know of the discussions that are happening around even changing how multilateral institutions, we believe it's very important. And yes, the push is that going forward, we need to think about this a bit more holistically and together rather than in silos. Right. So if we could pick on a couple of examples, Amit. So in your report, you've talked about India's digital ID program, which so India starting from Aadhaar onwards, bringing in people through financial inclusion and close to half a billion Indians and so on. So that's one part and that's well known. But you've also mentioned other examples from other parts of the world. One or two that you've looked at where you find interesting synergies that we can look at from India, again, from a both either from a growth and net zero point of view or both. I will possibly talk of things that are, I am very passionate about. There are many, many examples, obviously, in the report. I think I'd say more manufacturing jobs in India, I would say, for example, is paramount for India. We've been talking about Make in India. As we work with the folks in the industry, we see a bit of a dichotomy. We see industries crying for skilled labor, for example, at one end. And we see a lot of youth in India who go through some sort of scaling programs also. I think A, they are unemployed and they therefore cannot get to jobs, but there are folks who are skilled, but they are skilled in wrong things. So I think there are four or five examples here. There is an example of South Korea, very detailed example of what I think India is trying to do, for example, on Atmanirbhar Bharat, how they did in a way that enabled the both of this, not just the right job, but the right skill. There is an example of Germany, for example, how they did industry-specific formal and informal vocational education to make sure whatever was coming in the job market, people were being skilled accordingly. There is an example of Mexico, for example, on how they built blue-collar skilled workforce. And then there is an example from Ohio in US, how they matched all of this. So yes, it's multiple examples, but potentially with the scale and size of issue we have, just if we bring these four together, for example, and learn from these four and customize for India, 
I think this challenge that we see or this dichotomy that we see today as we talk to our clients on one end and the youth of this country on one end and we match them, I think would be a massive upswing in terms of both jobs as well as skilling. Amit, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks a lot. Pleasure talking to you. Disappearing data, China and India. Two weeks ago, China paused releasing its data on its rising youth jobless rate. The unemployment rate of people aged 16 to 24 had fallen to a record 21% in June. But as China's economy is looking weak on a number of fronts, several data points that were earlier available are being yanked back. Bloomberg News put together several data points that are either no longer there or are unclear. Land sales, currency reserves, bond transactions and even corporate registration data which is no longer available to overseas clients. Now let's look at India. India's decadal census is delayed as we all know. The last one was held in 2011 and the next one scheduled for 2021 was delayed by COVID understandably. But it's now middle of 2023 and we are two years past COVID so it's not clear why the delay persisted so long. But then last month the Indian Express reported that the census enumeration scheduled to take place in 21 has been pushed to 24-25. That's next year and beyond until further orders. In a letter sent to all states and union territories last month, the officer of the Registrar General of India who conducts the census has extended the deadline for freezing administrative boundaries to January 1st, 2024. Now, in the absence of the latest population census figures, which capture household data on employment, housing, literacy levels, migration patterns and infant mortality, the government statistical surveys were still based on the 2011 census. According to former chief statistician of India, Pranab Sen, who told Reuters last month that the quality of any statistical survey depends on census data. In 2019, India also held back the release of the National Consumption Expenditure Survey for 2017-18, usually released every five years over quality issues. Now, all of this has delayed changes in the base year for data used in the Consumer Price Index and Gross Domestic Product or GDP surveys, which are still based on 2011-12 data. Now, coming back to youth employment, we don't have that figure either. Prachi Salve, in an article written at the end of last year in Data Journalism Initiative India's Pen, pointed out that India's population poverty and consumption data is missing and has not been generated for a while now. She looked at 20 data sets of economic and non-economic data to conclude that some 12 sets of data were delayed. According to her, we don't have the annual periodic labor force survey now, the last one being 2021. There are, of course, quarterly releases which do not have data on youth unemployment and educated unemployment. And also data sets are linked, as other statisticians have also been pointing out. Consumption expenditure data is not out since 2012, which in turn impacts poverty data. One set leaked in 2015-16, but the government said it was reworking methodology and we've not heard about it since. Data sets like the National Family Health Service, NFHS, are on time and available. Absence of data, of course, leads to speculation or proxies. Corporate data is quite reliable in India, and sales number or employment data offer proxies to some extent, though the organized sector barely reflects 10% of the economy. India clearly has some catching up to do, if nothing else, to not being compared with China on these metrics. Foreign direct investment falls. Meanwhile, data that is available and not looking good is foreign direct investment. The Department for Promotion of Industry and Internal Trade, or DPIIT, has confirmed what our report last week, quoting columnist Ashok K. Bhattacharya of Business Standard, said about how for the first time since 2012-13, 
Gross foreign direct investment in 22-23 declined by 16% to $71 billion. Specifically, the DPIIT refers to the latest quarter and the trend continuing with FDI falling 22% to about $18 billion. According to Bhattacharya, FDI inflows have many components, the most important of which is foreign equity, while other components include reinvested earnings and so on. The DPIIT note says inflows dipped in segments including computer hardware and software trading, automobile and pharmaceuticals. In the last quarter, Maharashtra was the top destination for FDI, followed by Karnataka, Gujarat and Delhi. From imports and inflows, let's switch to outflows in rice this case. India's rice exporters have been very naughty, it appears. The government has now decided not to allow exports of basmati rice worth less than $1,200 per tonne. Why? Well, this is to restrict possible illegal shipment of white non-basmati rice in the garb of premium basmati rice. I hope you're with me on this one. If you're uninitiated, basmati rice of course costs much more and is usually long, slender and aromatic. Or put differently, you're more likely to have basmati rice as a biryani rather than mixed with dal as many of us do every day. I think I speak for the majority, but not everyone. Anyway, how interesting and ingenious, one could say about the exporters of course, who would pull this off at such scale that it would lead to a tariff slap on the face. So the Commerce Ministry said yesterday it has directed its trade promotion body to not register contracts below $1,200 per tonne. Evaluating all of this is obviously another task for which instructions have been issued to introduce additional safeguards to prevent the possible illegal exports of white non-basmati rice in the garb of basmati rice. The contracts below the ceiling price would be evaluated by a committee for understanding the variation in prices and use of this route for export of non-basmati white rice. So, not quite ease of doing business. Anyway, just to recount, last year India banned exports of broken rice, last month India banned exports of non-basmati white rice and last week a 20% export duty was slapped, yes that word again, on parboiled non-basmati rice. And now this. So would all of this mean that prices of rice in India are under control? Actually, that does not seem to be the case, but all of that in a story later in the week. Some corporate and business news, Reliance's 46th annual general meeting is tomorrow, which also indicates how old the company is as a listed entity. It went IPO, or initial public offer, in 1975, also a time when the term either did not exist or surely was not used as it is today. Moreover, the stock issue price was set by the controller of capital issues and not by the company. The controller of capital issues obviously does not exist today. Today, companies can set their own stock price, though investors tend not to like it when the stock price crashes sharply and seem to yearn for a CCI era like it happened in the last couple of years when several tech-based IPO prices crashed. Reliance's AGM is being keenly awaited by investors and others as it usually contains blueprints for the year or two ahead. While two corporate actions, that's the demerging of Geo Financial from the parent company and the listing of it, and a roughly 8,000 crore investment in Reliance Retail by Qatar's sovereign fund have already happened, eyes will be on what the specific growth and expansion plans will be for Geo Financial, whose stock, by the way, was hammered for four days consecutively on the bosses after listing last week before recovering on the fifth day of Friday last week. The AGM should also offer updates on its new energy initiatives, including hydrogen and the like, as well as its telecom rollout status, particularly in 5G, where it set itself some stiff targets last year or in last year's AGM. And of course, its traditional oil-to-chemical businesses, around which, of course, not that much is said. 
Reliance's AGM went virtual in July 2020 or at the 43rd AGM thanks to COVID-19. Till then, in recent years, it was held at the Birla Matushri Auditorium in New Marine Lines in South Mumbai, usually amidst much din, traffic jams, incessant honking and pouring rain. All in all, a pain to land up there and navigate, but I have fond memories nevertheless. More luxury home projects, gated communities and their ilk are growing. Housing major DLF said it was launching two new luxury housing projects worth 15,000 crore rupees in Gurgaon later this year. This follows the conclusion of sales worth 8,000 crore rupees in three days in February this year at a project called the Arbor in Gurgaon itself, according to its managing director Ashok Kumar Tyagi, as quoted by Wire Service PTI. DLF posted sales bookings of 15,000 crores for the 22-23 financial year, which is a two-fold increase from about 7,000 crores the previous year. DLF Stiagi said the demand for ultra-luxury, luxury and mid-income residential properties is very strong. And a new organization for disaster resilience. We spoke earlier of the need for investment in sustainability and net zero. With an increasing number of natural disasters around us, particularly driven by extreme weather events or other triggers, the ability and skills of citizens and authorities to respond to these disasters will become critical over time. The Coalition for Disaster Resilient Infrastructure or CDRI, a global organization with our India headquarters, was created to address this gap. It sits in India under the Ministry of Home Affairs and is a multi-stakeholder global partnership of national governments, United Nations agencies and programs, multilateral development banks and financing mechanisms, the private sector, as well as academic and knowledge institutions. Its objective, as it says, is to build resilience into infrastructure systems and development associated with it. A little more specifically, that means technical support, capacity building, research, knowledge management and advocacy and partnerships. To understand a little more about CDRI and how it works and will respond in situations, I spoke with Amit Proti, its Director General. Amit has a Bachelor's in Architecture from the School of Planning and Architecture in Delhi and a Master's in Regional Planning from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst and also pursued his doctoral studies focusing on urban water resource management at MIT. I began by asking him to tell us more about CDRI and what it was working on right now. So CDRI is the Coalition for Disaster Resilient Infrastructure. It's an international organization established by India. So it's India's leadership in the globe focusing more on what do we need to do to look at reducing disaster risks in the future. It's coming from an understanding of, you know, we can't wait for a disaster to strike and then rebuild. We're building a lot of infrastructure. Countries around the world are rebuilding infrastructure. How do we do that in a way where you're actually being resilient, you're being conscious of what could you lose in the future and how do you build against it. CDRI is a coalition. So we've got 31 countries who are part of this coalition. We've got eight organizations, international organizations, such as the World Bank, etc., who are part of the organization. India is the permanent co-chair. So CDRI is headquartered in New Delhi. India has put in the seed funding to set up this organization. It ranges all the way from U.S. on one side to Fiji on the other. We've got countries in Latin America, countries who are small island development states, countries who've experienced disasters and are very experienced dealing with it. For example, Japan. We've got countries in Europe who are proficient in addressing disasters but are actually facing their own new challenges. You look at all of the wildfires, for example. So it's a coalition intended to support capacity building and technical assistance 
in the space of disaster resident infrastructure. And again, trying to promote solutions that are very relevant to countries such as ours, where resources could be challenging. So in a way, we are also trying to see what are Global South solutions that can be brought to other Global South countries, but also brought to Global North countries that have their own challenges that we can see. And I'm going to ask you for an example or two. But before that, I mean, it's all evident to us, I guess, even intuitively that we are seeing more and more disasters, particularly natural. So is there a quantum to it? And are you able to measure what's been changing? Yeah, Govinson, about a month and a half, we'll actually be coming up with what we're calling our first flagship report. It's a global database of risk across the infrastructure sectors. We've looked at six kinds of hazards. And what we are finding is, if you look at accumulated risk in the system right now, we could lose something like $700 billion in asset loss and disruptions to services on an annual basis. You know, so if you look at the world and you say, if there's an earthquake hitting in one country and a cyclone hitting another country and a flood hitting a third country and a heat wave affecting a fourth country, if you add that all up, in the system, there is something like $700 billion of loss accumulated already. And that's, you know, if you think about our GDP, which is maybe six or seven times that number, some countries are losing 20% of their GDP for disaster hit system. Others are carrying risk that is 2-3% of their GDP already. Right. And what is a good example which shows how this coalition would come together or is coming together to respond, to anticipate and build capacity, as you said? So, you know, I'll give you maybe two examples. One, we are actually looking at the state of Odisha. You know, we all know Odisha is prone to cyclones. We are trying to understand our cyclonic patterns changing. This kind of analysis is relevant across all of your coastal countries that are facing cyclones. We're trying to understand our cyclones changing because of climate change. What that means is the pattern changing, is the wind speed changing, is the gust speed which actually can damage infrastructure, is that changing? And then we're looking at the power sector. So we're saying, you know, how are the electricity transmission system prepared for that change in wind speed? So are there assets, are there towers, are there transmission lines that may not be able to withstand that new wind speed that would happen because of climate change. And if that's the case, what should the utilities do? They can't spread and fix everything. So are there target areas that one can understand based on new scientific analysis that you need to intervene on? And then how do you prioritize? So we're helping with a study such as this, which is, again, learning from different countries and also sharing that to other countries. And are there any early answers to any of these questions? One on cyclones and the second on towers and location of those towers? Yeah, so there are some things that we actually issued an advisory prior to Bipar Joy, saying, you know, a few things that the utility could actually be looking at. Though if you've got some loose things already that you know you need to fix before, or if you've got transformer that's sitting on the ground that has a potential to be flooded, well, raise it up. So there are certain things that can be done that are good measures to reduce the risk. And then there are other things like worry your transmission lines in certain areas because if you have overhead lines, chances of them failing is very, very high. So if you can afford it, bury those. But again, that undergrounding doesn't need to happen everywhere. One can be selective about it. So we've actually provided some of that information or in the process of providing that information to the government of Odisha. And you have your own engineers or surveyors who do all of this? So CDRI is a secretariat. We have some in-house expertise. We don't provide technical expertise directly. We procure that from the market. And that is where the value of the coalition becomes incredibly important. If we have a problem in India, 
through the coalition, we can get expertise from other countries. Similarly, in other countries where there's a challenge, we can bring services from around our member countries. And you also have released a report on airports, which are a big potential victim for... Uh... Yeah, thanks for mentioning that, Govit. I mean, sometimes all of us are flying these days, which is good and bad, but we're all flying. And sometimes one is not thinking what happens if an airport doesn't function. And if you look at airports, airports provide a very critical function, not only to us as commuters, but also sometimes to supply chains. There's been instances where airports have flooded and supply chains have been impacted, particularly where some parts of the world which are really, really remote. You know, a lot of small islands are quite remote and the airport might be the only connection to the rest of the world. So what we did is we did a study of about 111 airports around the world and we came up with some understanding of how are they looking at this element of risk. Some do it very well. You know, some have full-blown studies. They're analyzing their risks from earthquakes, floods, etc., Others are not doing so well. So what we are trying to do is come up with some guidance to say, if you're an airport, here are certain things to think about. Of course, you've got to address your flood risk within the airport, but you also have to make sure that your pilots and your food and everything can get to the airport. So it's not just about the airport. The airport is in the system. So we're trying to come up with guidance along those lines for critical infrastructure such as airports. So for CDRI, we focus right now on critical infrastructure. So that includes the power sector, transportation sector, and telecommunications. But these are just an example from the transportation system. Right. Amit, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Govind. Thank you for having me. That's it from me for today. Have a great Monday and week ahead. Do write to us with any feedback or comments. I look forward to hearing from you on govindraj at thecore.in. We're also on X, that's Twitter, and finally LinkedIn. Bye for now. This was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.